if you haven't got an adaptable mindset and a curiosity of learning, then it probably won't happen at all. Uh, fail fast, learn fast and fix fast. Hello and welcome to the Offfield Rugby Pod. I'm your host, Brian Moylette, former Irish age grade international player, now mindset and performance coach. I help players and teams all over the world overcome setbacks, play in the zone and achieve higher levels. On this podcast, I chat with people at the top level about their journey so that you can get their insights and hear what worked for them. You probably agree that you need to be strong mentally as well as physically, but most players don't know how to work on their mindset. My new book, The Book on How You Become a Pro Rugby Player, is like a gym program, but for your mental strength. In it, you'll learn how to instantly move on when you make mistakes in games, how to feel excited and confident on the field, and how to play in the zone. And it's available now on Amazon. Please subscribe to the pod wherever you're listening, and be sure to send it on to some friends. Cheers. Brian Ashton coached Bath, Ireland and England in the professional era, and was a player, coach and school teacher in the amateur days. The way he thinks about the game, coaching and leadership is unreal, which you'll hear in the pod. And the more I learn, the more I think or realise that coaching is more simple than people make it out to be. In the pod, you'll hear some brilliant stories and anecdotes and get a real understanding of what good coaching and good leadership is from a guy who's coached at the very top level. We touch on lots of different areas and you will learn plenty in this one. So here's episode number 72 with Brian Ashton. Dealing with money can be very stressful and especially with everything that's happening in the world right now and stock markets crashing. If you're not an expert, it can be difficult to know what to do. Sparks Wealth is an Irish financial planner and they are experts when it comes to dealing with finances and helping guide you on what's best for your situation. You can book a free call with Will now at Sparks Wealth on their website, sparkswealth.ie. Recently, a family member of mine did just that and was so happy they did so. They said Will guided them through everything in a simple, easy to understand way, no jargon, and it was a brilliant experience. So that's sparkswealth.ie. So I saw a few of your posts there on LinkedIn about going into the Royal Grammar School in Lancaster and having some interesting chats with students, rugby players there. Chat to me about those. Yeah, well, just a bit of his- historical background to that. The um, Royal Grammar School Lancaster is a school I attended as a pupil. Um, I started there in 1957 as a boarder. Um, and got expelled five years later, five and a half years later, five and two terms later, or two semesters, I think you guys call it in Canada, don't you? Um, and bizarrely, now live in a flat, it's about 600 metres from, from where I used to board. So life's sort of gone full circle to some extent. And uh, just now and again, I sort of go in to, um, to talk to the headmaster talk to the and he he mentioned it to the head of sixth form who asked if I'd be prepared to go in and um, and have a conversation with some of the sixth form students 
and I was given a free hand in what I wanted to talk about and I said it might be interesting just to sort of provoke their thought processes into talking about developing a game-changing mindset and I said you must stress to them beforehand that it's whilst there will be uh, an element of sporting connection in what I talk about initially then this is about a life thing not just a games thing um, so they agreed to, uh, yeah, so I went in, I spent two afternoons there, two groups, and uh, and it was, it was quite interesting, actually, because I think the first group were, were not that desperately keen to engage initially, and I, it's, I, I found it, because I was a teacher for 20-odd years before everybody went professional, and I found that sort of, on initial connections, um, pupils are quite wary of expressing their thoughts publicly for a whole variety of reasons. The main one being fear of, I think, of peer group perception and a fear of failure, not being right. And, you know, the questions I tried to ask didn't have a right or wrong answer. Uh, it's just for opinions, really, I was looking. But obviously they must have had a word with the people who came in the second week because they thought they were far more engaging. I think, you know, they've been warned, this is what's coming. So, uh, and it's there's no threat. It's not an intimidating environment. It's a very friendly one. And uh, yeah, it was, it was it was really interesting. And they they sort of offered some really interesting thoughts. And, and, and as we were going through the second one, and I sort of got this impression from the first one, as we were going through the second Thursday afternoon, that we've got to be very mindful. I'm, I was 76 three weeks ago, uh, very mindful of a generation gap and that people at that age will look at things totally differently, again, for a whole variety of different reasons uh, than I do. So, um, so it's quite interesting to, to hear the sort of some of their interpretations on what I was talking about and it was I find it very interesting just to very actively listen to them not just listen actively listen to them let them talk uh, allow peers of silence to develop when one had answered then another one would jump in with their thoughts etc and obviously learn from the environment as well and so it was it was really good it was really good and it, it sort of took me back to my probably the second half of my teaching days when I'd actually learn to be a teacher it took me a good 10 years to learn to be a teacher um in which i think i was i was far far better at um drawing out thoughts and ideas from my students than i have been in the previous 10 largely because in the previous 10 i'd not allowed them to express any thoughts at all i was a guy in charge i was a mem member of staff i was a man in control um I had all the knowledge and wisdom, et cetera, of course, which is total nonsense, especially when you talk to 16, 17, 18 year olds. And um, so, so yeah, it was, a, it was a bit of a flashback actually to my second half of my teaching career. Cool. And what were some of the things that they said that you found interesting or didn't expect around that kind of game changing mindset? I think, um, I think one of the things that was interesting initially was they, I think their interpretation of it, that it was something that happened overnight. 
you know, you went from one day to the next and you could change everything. And I said, well, that's not been my experience. My experience is it develops over a period of time. And, and if you haven't got the, if you haven't got an adaptable mindset and a curiosity of learning, then it probably won't happen at all. So it's not something you can switch on and off. It's not something that you can, that you're born with. Well, is it or isn't it? I don't know. Um, but certainly you need a particular mindset to get into the game changing mode. Um, one of the things that um, they came up with very quickly was that it was really important to eliminate the fear of failure in that sort of environment. So we talked about, and, I, and I've used this in my coach, in my rugby coach, and as well at the very top level of the game, trying to create an environment which is a safety of fearlessness. Don't be afraid to fail. You know, you'll still get up tomorrow morning. It's no big deal. Um, and you'll, there's a good chance that you could learn from it. I mean, I have a, a thinking partner, a guy called Kevin Roberts, who was World Chief Executive Sarchi and Sarchi. Um, for 17 years and he was expelled from the same school four years later than me so we've got a pretty good connection and he he always talks about um you know in the in, in the advertising world he said my guys could come up with a hundred ideas a day and 99 percent that were no good at all but they still came up with them so they came up with the same to uh, fail fast learn fast and fix fast um which i thought was pretty appropriate for uh um, certainly for my coaching career um, and for players to understand too and for, for young pupils to understand in the sixth form at, at the grammar school. Yeah, 100%. And uh, one, just when you said that, uh, I heard a story of Dyson, the guy who made the vacuum cleaner. I think there was 5,000 or 5,500 um, quote-unquote failed yeah. patents, you know, and then it was the last one, obviously, that created the Dyson. And the rest is history. And in fact, I'm sat in a place here, probably about five miles from where he lives. You, you mentioned when after 10 years of your teaching career, you changed from being the know-and-all and the, you know, that kind of type of person to actively listen. What was it that, that sparked that or brought that on? Well, I went to, um, in 19... I started teaching in 1969. In 1975, I went and lived on the continent for five years. I went to play rugby in France initially and then in Italy. And, excuse me, I came across a guy called Pierre Villepreau, who'd been an ex-French international fullback, who'd been a game changer in, in that he was the probably the first fullback to be a genuine counter-attacking fullback. So instead of just kicking the ball back to the opposition, which most fullbacks did in those days, he ran it back, um, you know, to the consternation of the opposition who thought, well, you can't do this because no one else does it. Um, so he had that sort of mindset, that ambitious mindset anyway. And he had an educational background as well. So he became director of rugby in Italy when I went over to play and coach over there. So we spent a fair amount of time together, got on really well. And I used to watch and listen to his, um, watch and listen to the delivery of his sessions, very much player engaged, very much um, around problem solving to decision making, lots of what if scenarios, what if this happens, 
you know, have a think about it, then go out and show me what your solution will be, uh, which was completely different. And it was totally the opposite from the way that I'd engaged or not engaged, sorry, with, with, with students and with players before that. So when I left Italy, um, he was still there. And then he went back to France to coach a club called Stade Toulouse. And this was in 1980. And I went uh, over for two summers and spent two periods of about five weeks, I think, each pre-season, just watching him, listening to him, living at his house and talking to him. And then about four or five years later, when I was teaching in Lancashire, uh, I got back to the north of England. Um, I invited him over uh, to do some work with uh, some of the students that I was with at the school and do some coaching at the club I was involved with. Um, and he was the real person who sort of set wheels in motion, say, look, there's more than one way to do this. And if you want to get the best out of the people that you're working with, you're not working, you're not in charge of them, you're working alongside them, you're working with them. It's a collaborative environment. He said, you better start engaging with them to find out what they think and what they know. And, and it, it, it suddenly, sort of one of the interesting things was that I suddenly realised that if you don't engage with them, you never know what they know. So you can actually be completely wasting their time by teaching or coaching things that they already know. And, you know, I, I over the years, I've watched a lot of coaches, especially, who constantly repeat things over and over again that the, the players, the pupils and players can do. And I'm thinking, well, why are you doing this? And it's a bit of a comfort zone for the coaches, but it comes a real comfort zone and a non-learning zone for the players. So I think, yeah, you know, that ability to, to produce scenarios, to constantly stretch and challenge people, to take them away from what they're comfortable with doing, um, to keep pushing boundaries, to sort of live on the edge, and things like that is, is absolutely vital. Um, not only for the for the you know the, the the older and the more established players, but actually for youngsters who probably at that age, 16, 17, 18, are, are very much you know at the sharp edge of learning. Um, and I, I I just get a sense that um, that a lot of, a lot of educational institutions. And a lot of academies, certainly in this part of the world, don't push the students down that pathway. It's still very much a more direct sort of command control um, approach rather than the, the collaborative approach. Yeah, like you make lots of great points there. And something I find found um, recently with rugby, um, would say the one three three one system or being when I was playing like you know and just when I grew up I was very lucky to have very good coaches um Nigel Carlin being one in Connacht and just we learned how to like read defenses and play different scenarios and just link up with each other and just I don't know read things whereas you know when being put into a system like that then I remember just being told like you go here you do this you do that you stand here you can do this or this and I remember just being like so frustrated nearly wanting to quit or like I just feel like I can't do this you know well you know if had you, because you've been used to playing in another way why would you want to play like that you know why would you want that that regimented approach that restrictive approach that repetitive approach and I, and I found with these systems and structures exactly the same as yourself um, 
that in fact what it ends up with players yeah. play the system they don't play the game that's going on around them so I'm a great believer in opportunistic coaching provide players with the opportunity to see and feel and communicate what's going on around them and then sort out roles and responsibilities from there um, but in a system you can't do that because as you quite rightly say you've got to be fairly precise in where you've got to be at any one time on the field that's completely the opposition walked off a lot of teams will still play the system because that's what they've got to do <laughs> yeah 100% people are more I've I found and seen people are more worried about worrying where they should be standing than looking at the defence so you get, you get players actually running away from the action when they could make a really positive contribution to it because actually they feel they're in the wrong place that's not part of the system. Um, so, you know, I, I'm a, yeah, I believe in, in roles and response players playing according to their capabilities and roles and responsibilities um, rather than playing in a system. And it, it actually, it probably, with a good side over a period of time, there's probably a relatively systematic approach in the way you play, but actually it's making full use of, of all the players and all their individual capabilities. And at any stage, they will know that they can break out of what they're doing. If they suddenly see something, they say, right, we'll go down this alleyway, bang, off they go. So that they're always given the freedom um, to, to explore and to react to what's going on around them. <clears throat> yeah, uh, and when you say there that a kind of a system can evolve then over a period of time in that i've been there in teams you've played with a team for two years and you know each other like you know each other's games you know you start to learn how each other play and you know he does this and then you can play off each other and then it can look it can look quite then um choreographed or quite organized because you're so used to each other yeah yeah absolutely um i remember a game that england played I was the attack coach in 2001, I think it was, and I played France at Twickenham. And at half-time, we, we, we'd scored a lot of tries in the preceding 18 months. We were on an average of about five tries a game, I think, which is quite a lot at international level, especially in those days. And we were losing at half-time because we tried to be really smart and clever and play wide, 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 wide. Of course, the French had analysed us and they just shut us down. Uh, we just said at half-time, all I'd say, we just need to be a bit more direct. That was the only message that went to the players because some pretty smart players in that group. <laughs> and in fact, bizarrely, two backs led the way in the first five minutes of the second half. They got into the middle of the field and just picked and went and picked and went and picked and went. And and, and, and that was it. And they, they felt they had the licence to do that. They could see opportunities where that could happen. And so in they went. So what was traditionally a forwards role was actually taken over by two backs for five minutes. Then the forwards sort of picked up on that and the backs went back to where they normally played and suddenly the whole game opened up. We won by 40-odd points. Um, but it, it was great. Just having that framework rather than a system, this is how we want to play. Now, you know how you can fit into this framework because of the capabilities you've got. So together, let's find a way of making the best use of all those capabilities within that framework. Yeah, 100%. And yeah, something I've found just myself coaching recently, I tried like 
I'm coaching university level like two, three years ago to be very open and give them free reign. But then they kind of sometimes were a bit lost because I suppose they didn't have the rugby IQ or the years playing. And so what I found or I'm finding is helping a lot is showing them many different options. Like you can go here and do this, you can do this and just trying to show like a lot of options so that then they can see the options and run and see the game that way. So then they're more comfortable when they're playing. Does that make sense? It does make sense. Yeah. And it actually, it leads me to thinking about something I was actually talking about. Do you remember Will Carling? Yeah. Uh, yeah I had a chat with him at lunchtime. Um, and when we talk about things like this, uh, and it, it's about developing players, responsibility, ownership and leadership on the field and giving the opportunity, as you say, to see the game and feel the game um, as opposed to telling them how to play it. But it, it can be a lengthy process. And, uh, you know, if you're in a results-based environment, then it needs quite a bit of courage from a coaching point of view to be able to follow that through. Um, so I suppose for young coaches, it's probably quite tricky that um, because they will, have a, they will have a fear of not winning. They'll have a fear of what other people think about their team if it doesn't win games. So I, I suppose... Over a period of time, there's a compromise initially. Um, but a compromise, I feel, that's very much in favour of engaging the players, uh, but understanding too that they may not have that knowledge, uh, that game IQ that you mentioned. So there needs to be probably more of an input from the coach than there may be later on, say, two or three years down the line, if you continue to follow that, uh, follow that journey. Yeah, and when you say that, what I'm reminded of, I wasn't in the environment, but Pat Lamb, when he was a conductor, went there first. Guys said that in year one, the game plan, they were kicking the ball a lot <clears throat> and playing the way Connacht always played. But behind the scenes, they were working on their skills. They were working on a new way of playing. And then in year two, they they were beginning to implement that way of playing on the actual field and then year three I think it was year three they won the pro 12 but you know year one they were talking about all this stuff and working it but it was results based so they were trying to win the actual game at the weekend yeah 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 and I think he's probably done similar with Bristol now he's at Bristol now Pat um, and he's probably doing the same sort of thing there I think initially they had quite a regimented way of playing but it's quite dynamic. There wasn't a lot of kicking. Um, but I think now they've uh, there's sort of a little bit more freedom in terms of individual players being allowed to express themselves a bit more. So we're really interested to see how they go this season. Last season was a, I think it was a switch from one style to another. And this really struggled. But this season, they're top of the table at the moment. They've only played three games, but the three out of three wins. So be interesting to see how they go. But yeah. it, it, I mean, it, it's, you know, it's like the game-changing mindset I talked about right at the start. You, you don't just click a switch and players move from one way of thinking about the game and approaching game to another. Um, you know, I'm I've always thought that patience is one of the key words in coaching. But also being authentic, you know, knowing what you want. Um, and that was one of the things when I first started teaching and coaching. I, I mean, as a player, I was a maverick. 
um, obviously with my lifestyle being expelled from school, I was a bit of a maverick as well, a bit of a rebel, but actually my teaching and coaching are completely opposite. So the way I taught and coached wasn't the authentic me at all. And consequently, it was quite ineffective looking back. Um, so I think one of the things, again, going back to the guy, Kevin Roberts, who my thinking partner, let's call him that. Um, he, he said to me, he, he always said, he's, the key thing to do early, as early as possible in your life, if you're ever in an environment where you've got to communicate and lead and engage with other people is find out what you, what he calls the equity word, the one word that describes you and then build the whole purpose of how you operate around that. And I think, you know, that's one of the things I talk to the, to the students at the, at the grammar school about and I asked them the question. I said, have you, you just now, just tell me, please put your hand up and tell me the one word that describes you and about 10% of them could. But actually, out of the 10, only 5% came out with adjectives. <laughs> so this came out with nouns. I said, you can't describe yourself with a noun. It's going to be an adjective. I said, how the hell you're doing A-levels, you're grammar school students, you're going to be in big trouble here. <laughs> a noun, an adjective. But it was interesting because they, it, they, they'd never thought about it. And, uh, you know, it was, I, I bumped into, because I walked down into town now and again, and I bumped into a couple of them a couple of days later, and one of them came up with this, I've got my equity word now. I didn't ask him what it was, because I don't need to. If he thinks he's found it's good, so it's good that they were thinking about it. And, and, I, and I found it very useful. Um, my mind's changed. So initially it was... And this came from a headline in one of the national newspapers over in England. A, a former pupil of mine, when I was teaching years and years ago, described me, I think it was during the 2007 World Cup when I was in charge of the England team, as a visionary with a touch of steel. And I thought, well, that sounds good. I don't recognise myself like that, but that sounds really good. So I just took the visionary bit. Well, that sounds pretty good, that. Um, but since, as I've got older... I've changed it to restless, uh, which suppose fits in with visionary as well, because I just never ever satisfied now with what I'm doing. I'm always going to, I suppose at the age of 76, you know, there is an end in sight. So what you want to do is just keep going if you can and keep doing things differently, keep doing things better, keep learning, etc. So yeah, but that the equity word to to actually guide you down the path of authenticity, I think. It's pretty important. Yeah, I love that. And it's so important to know who you are, you know, yeah. and who you are as a person. Yeah, because I think sometimes in school, you, you know, we all get nearly told to be a certain way and to act a certain way, wear these clothes, show up this time, do this, do this. And, you know, there's probably reason, there's reason for it and it's needed, but you become regimented and you know, it's important to, yeah, to know who you are and as a person. Yeah. I showed a video, actually, at the start of my sort of, it wasn't a presentation, it was a discussion, and I can't remember where it's from. It was an American video, and it, it was entitled, Do What You Can't. Mm. On YouTube, it's worth having a look at if anybody, you know, anybody interested in looking at that, do what you can't. And it, and it is about, you know, just don't do what you're told. Mm. Just try and do things and... You know, I, I always talk about, I've talked, well, certainly in the latter half of my coaching career, talk to players about practicing the notion of impossibility. 
you know, and that we go through a whole series of things that none of them may work, but it doesn't matter because eventually it's come across a golden nugget that does work that no one else has ever done. Um, but it's exciting practicing it, you know, and I found uh, certainly in all environments, both in the amateur and the professional environments, that players love, the majority of players love trying to find something that no one's done before. Um, so I always used to, to give time to both students when I was coaching at school and players in the amateur and the professional era, that opportunity during the week, say, right, here we go. We're now practicing the impossible for 20 minutes. So off they go, just leading to it. And then they come back at the end and say, right, what have you got for me that I've not seen before? And some of the things are fantastic. So, some of them are so fantastic, there's no chance of them ever working on a rugby field. <laughs> But just now and again, we came up one or two things that did. Uh, I love it. And so what would you have done in that case? Like, because it's something that when I, when I was playing, what you're saying there, like when I was playing touch games before training or whatever, like that, always I'd be like running a certain line, throwing balls everywhere and just trying mad stuff. Yeah. But with that kind of saying what you're saying, when the coach wasn't telling you what to do, but how did you... Did you put them into a, a game or did you just say off with you, do whatever you want? No, I just left them to it. But they, they, they had to show me in a game eventually how it, how it, would, how it was um, how it's going to be useful. But it was, it's quite interesting because what we did, I think, and this again came when I was coaching at Bath in the 1990s and Bath a very, very strong side because I had some outstanding players. Um, you know, we... we we sort of agreed again, this sort of collaborative agreement that whatever we came up with, we had to respect the basics of the game. Mm. We had to respect the opposition we were playing against. And we had to respect the game of rugby itself. So there were, there were sort of, despite the fact we're practicing the notion of impossible, there were boundaries there, you know, because you have to respect the game. You can't just come up with any crazy idea because, you know, they just don't work, as simple as that. So that, uh, that, that respect for those three things. But it, it was, yeah, it was just an interesting environment. And often I'd have, um, they'd tell me what they wanted to do and I'd have my ideas of how best to do it. And at least probably more than 50% of the time, their ideas were better than mine. And I think that's another interesting element, especially coaching um, youngsters to give them that opportunity to come up with things. And, you know, and if they come up with a better idea than yourself, then you put your hand up and say, right, we'll go with that. And I, I certainly know as a young teacher and a young coach, I was terrified of that happening. Absolutely terrified that anyone would think, buy me this 16 year old kid knows better than me. And I'll give you an instance of what I'm talking about. So in my last ever teaching job, in my last year of teaching, before rugby went professional, I was teacher to school not far away from where I'm sat now in Somerset in the southwest of England. And um, three of the senior guys, including the captain, came to me um, at the start of the season and, and they said they'd read that headline about visionary and this, that and the other. And they said, you're meant to be a creative coach, aren't you? <laughs> so alarm bells start ringing in your head when... 17-year-old kid comes up and asks you that. And I said, why? And they said, well, we've had a meeting. We decided we want to do something different this year. So we want to play the whole season without kicking the ball. 
And I said, well, that's ridiculous. The laws of the game don't allow it. And they said, well, how do you know if we don't try it? And I thought, these guys are talking my language. So, so we gave it a go and we went through the whole tour, never kicked the ball once. And we won 12 out of 13 games and it was amazing. Great learning journey for us all, but that's another story. But the point I was, I was going to tell you was that very early on, I think it was the second or third week, um, I was stood on the touchline because I used to set the scenarios and stand and watch and, um, and sort of let them play it out for five minutes and then we'd have a chat. I was stood on the touchline, at the end of five minutes I went and I said to the guy playing number 10, I said, that was an interesting decision. I wouldn't have made that if I'd been playing there. And he said to me, with all due respect, Mr. Ashton, oh, oh, oh here we go. He said, uh, how would you know? He said, because you couldn't see what I saw. You were stood on the touchline, so what, you couldn't see what I saw in front of me. So how can you comment on the decision I made? And I looked at him and I thought, is this guy taking the award? And he wasn't, he was just being genuine. And he was 16 years of age. And I... <laughs> I sort of just thought, I just paused thought, and I said, you're absolutely spot on, you're right. And from then onwards, and this is going back 20 odd years, and then I always made sure before I made a comment on any element of the game, that I was in the same position as the player performing it, so I could see the picture that they saw. Um, so yeah, that was, a, that was a great learning learning thing for me. That's brilliant, brilliant. And uh, it's interesting something you said earlier about um, being silent as a coach, or I think you said teacher, coach, um, and giving them space to talk, giving the players space to talk and how, you know, their ideas and they'll often come up with things. And yeah, it's something I've found. So you always hear it with coaches, they go, anyone have anything to say? Okay, no, okay, let's go, let's move on. And I found it with them. You know, the last year or two, um, at half times, the play just list waiting and just listen to the players, and they 95 90% of the time will say everything that I've been seeing like, we need to kick more, we need to run straighter, we need to do this, we need to do that. Absolutely, give them space to, yeah, to come up with their thoughts and ideas. Um, yeah, it's uh. And often I found, I think similar to what you were alluding to there, that I used to ask a question, then halfway through the answer, because it, the answer I expected, I cut them off. So you never know if they would add on to the answer that I was expecting. And, and in, I think in an environment like, like the, the, the players catch on pretty quickly, well, we'd better come up with the answer that he expects. Mm. Uh, off halfway through. Uh, and I found over a period of time, and again, this going back to the guy, Pierre Vilpre, he used to ask the questions, players come up with an answer, and then for 15 seconds, he'd just stand there. And just every now and again, another player would speak. And he'd come up with a different take on it, or, or an added take on it, and suddenly the whole thing sort of, um, sort of took a life of its own almost, the discussion. And that's where all the best ideas came from. Because you'll find, I suppose, in any group of people, won't you, whatever it is, whether you're in the classroom, whether you're on the playing field, whether you're out in business, in life, there are some people who are fairly reticent in coming forward. They're not desperately keen for their thoughts to be public. But if they're in that sort of environment where it's that safety fearlessness and they're encouraged to come up with ideas, and whether they're right or wrong is irrelevant, just the coming up with ideas might spur something else. It might spark another idea. 
So I think, you know, it's a fantastic environment to try and create if, if you possibly can. Oh, yeah, that's brilliant. I love it. And uh, it takes real courage as a coach to stand there in silence, actually. Yeah, it does. It does. But you get sometimes you get some of the best things come forward from the players when you do. Yeah. hundred percent. With a group of, it was at Bath, I think, senior players. And I could see the players shifting uncomfortably. And they probably thought, he's lost. He doesn't know what to do next. And uh, then one of them, I won't mention his name, but he's a pretty famous international player and it was a British lined as well. He said, come on. He said, what are we going to do now? I said, well, I was waiting for you to tell me. And I don't know why I said that. And he said, seriously? And I said, yes. And so that's how it all kicked off. It was great after that. So, yeah. That's good, yeah. It's like having a bit of fun as well while you're out there. Or, you know, like... Yeah, I mean, I'll, if, and that, that's another thing too, isn't it? With Especially with youngsters. You know, if you take the fun element away from it, then I, mean, I think you're in the wrong job in their own profession. I was reading uh, a quote, I think it was earlier this year, by from Dan Carter. And he was talking about the... Somebody was asking about the, the state of the modern game, the professional game. And he said, well, it's pretty obvious his players have got bigger, they got stronger, they got faster, um, as the game's got more and more professional. But he said, my massive concern is that the characters are disappearing from the game. He said, I'm not all that convinced that players have as much fun as they used to when they're playing games. And he said, you know, fun is why we start playing the game in the first place. Fun is why we continue to play the game uh, when we leave school, because we got the option then of not playing it. And he said, once you start taking that away, then suddenly, you know, the, the game is in real danger uh, of going down a path that we don't want it to. So if he's saying that, then I'm pretty sure he's right. Yeah. Absolutely. And even at the top level, so you're like, you're spot on, like with players who are doing it, um, amateurs off their own accord, but even at the top level, you hear it often that people who stop enjoying the game, they stop performing and they, it, it, it all becomes a drag. Yeah, because I, I'm, I'm, I'm hard pressed to think of any activity that people engage in during their lives that they perform exceptionally well at if they don't like it. <laughs> Maybe there is some, but I've never come across any. Um, I've been really good at having to do something I don't like and doing it badly. I'm pretty good at that, like washing up and cleaning the house and things like that. Yeah, I'm an expert at that, doing it badly. But to do things well, I think you've got to have a real enjoyment and real fun element about it. And that obviously, as you said before, that's, that's a really key thing to, to keep in the environment. A hundred percent. Yeah. Like, and coaches are people who are involved in teams. Like it's, it's, it really is number one, you know, like players have to love it. They have to love being there, enjoy it. And, you know, it can't be a drain all the time. Of course you do fitness. Of course you do, you know, yeah. you, you got to learn. Of course you do the stuff that is not like all sunshine and roses, but. Yeah. I was, uh, I, I don't know whether you know or not, but I've last 13 years, I've been doing some work with New Zealand rugby. So the International Rugby Academy of New Zealand is world famous and it's run by Murray Mexted, who's next all black number eight. 
And so I've been going over to New Zealand before coronavirus kicked in a couple of times a year, and I'm still doing work with them on Zoom. I'm doing one in a couple of weeks' time. And um, I remember one of the coaches, a guy called Mike Cron, who's a forwards coach, scrimmaging expert, uh, but general forwards coach as well. He's done nearly 200 test matches over the years with New Zealand. And, and he said, when... It, I can't, on one of the courses, one of the coaches said, you know, what, what's what's the All Blacks' view of the game? And he said, international rugby is serious fun. You know, we know that people's expectations are high. He said, but if we don't have fun, he said, we ain't going to perform at the level we can do. And he was very open about it. He said, we try and bring fun into, in all our sessions. The players know when it's time to be serious, but we have some fun as well. So, yeah, absolutely. And I think it's something that younger players um, or more inexperienced make the mistake of. They think I certainly did that as you go up through levels that it has to become more serious and it becomes less fun and you have to be different and you have to walk different and talk and act different and talk out differently. Yeah. Well, it's like it's it being not being authentic, isn't it? Unless, unless that's your nature anyway, being a miserable bugger. <laughs> yeah. But I think it amuses me when I watch teams run out, run down the tunnel, they've got the game, what they call the game face on. I'm thinking, God, these guys look as though they're going to hate the next 80 minutes. They look so miserable when they run out. You know, and uh, just lighten up, guys, and enjoy what you're doing. It's a real privilege to play at that level. It's an immense privilege. I'm pretty well rewarded too, so why wouldn't you enjoy it? <laughs> yeah, 100%. Yeah, 100%. And it's interesting then because, you know, people could say like, oh, well, they have pressures of their contract or their living or like if, or the scrutiny of, of people. But like, like you just, I don't know, you just, I've never played at those that level, so I can't comment from experience. But like, you just accept that and you just, I don't know, play. And like you say, you if you're not enjoying it, you're not going to do well anyway. So you may as well go out and give it your all and enjoy it and have fun and just give it a lash. Absolutely. And I think it's really important to create that sort of environment where players understand that. Because if you don't, then players maybe get the wrong impression of what, let's, let's say we're talking about professional rugby, what professionalism is all about. You know, professionalism can only be put in place with a, a very stern face and very fixed etc and we know there's a place for that uh, at times and place for that at times during games and in practice as well but by and large we're still gonna have you know this this fun approach it is a game after all and it, it's what's quite sad is that um i mean I, I i certainly know at school level that it's pretty easy to uh, to some of the more established rugby playing schools it's pretty easy to kill that that sort of approach off where they almost become mini-me's of a professional environment, which, you know, at the age of 16, 17, 18, is just ridiculous. So uh, it's, it's, it's an area of the game I think we've got to keep an eye on, make sure that we, we retain that for as long and as much as possible. Absolutely. And you mentioned there is a couple of times about professionalism and 
once again, as I said, my experience, when I started going up through levels or whatever, I thought that being more professional meant being more serious and being less like we're talking about. But professional, professionalism means eating good food, getting to bed early, doing your stretching after your training, um, resting up the night before a game. You know, it's it's that kind of stuff. It's it's living your life in a in that kind of way that allows you to be your best self. It's not changing who you are. Yeah, it's a lifestyle choice, isn't it? And making sure that you're the best version of yourself that you can possibly be every time you go out to train and play. Um, but that doesn't mean it's not fun. Exactly. Hundred <laughs> yeah. percent. Yeah, but you know, I've I've seen environments uh, at, right at the top level too, where coaches have almost, I wouldn't say sneered at the fun element, but they've, they've sort of tried to keep it deadly serious all the way through the session because they feel if it's not, then players won't perform at the best, they won't concentrate, they won't focus. But I, my experience has been that's just not true. Um, you know, and, and when if they do overfocus and over concentrate, then they become inhibited in what they do. You know, just give them a bit of freedom. Yeah. Allow them to yeah, just to express themselves within the environment they're in. <clears throat> yeah. And I heard a really good one chatting to Ezan Asiwa on here, who played at Leinster and yeah. the Blues yeah. before that. And when he, he said that towards the end of his career, like, you know, when he was in his 30s, winning hiding cups I don't know three or four of them and he said that Joe Schmidt I think said this to him but what he would do is in every break and play he would switch off so if the ball was kicked into the stand he would switch off he would look into the stand look at the people having their day out he would look at the other players and as if he was nearly not playing rugby and then when it was back on he would switch on so it was nearly like an American football game for him he would switch on for the play he would be all in focused and then when the break and play it was switch off yeah I mean I I, I sort of I used to use the phrase when I was younger coaching but big, you know still understood understood sorry the, how ridiculous it is to say you've got to focus and concentrate for 80 minutes. Well, you can't. The human brain doesn't work like that. You know, and I should have known from my educational background, we had 35-minute lessons for a reason. You know, oh, in those 35 minutes, you probably had a bit of a break every now and again to have a chat about something and discuss or get sidetracked and this, that, and the other. You know, so to say you've got to focus for 80 minutes is ridiculous. Well, the ball's only in play for about 35 anyway. You know, and you can imagine a, a good for a winger in the in the old days, a good ninety five percent of that the ball was nowhere near you. <laughs> so, um, so you sort of keep a general eye on what's going on and where you can be most useful. But to have that steely concentration is crazy. So that's really good advice. That yeah, ball's out of play, just switch off. Yeah, switch back on again. I I was always allude uh, to to batting at cricket. You know, some of the uh, in some of the test matches, these players that play through two or three sessions, like they're at the crease for six hours. You know, so there's no way they can concentrate for six hours, but yet the media make a great play of it. Yeah, what a folk! I mean, you watch the guys; they bat, they'll they'll play a ball, then they'll they'll do what they do. They'll fiddle with the gloves. They'll walk away towards the umpire at square leg. Um, they might just have a 
stroll around, walk down the pitch, tap it down when it doesn't need to, and they're just switching off. Uh, I, I, I remember speaking to one of the leading England batsmen. I just sat on a plane with him a few years ago, and he said he just played two innings that had been test match saving that lasted a day and a half. And he said that was his focus, was just walk away from the wicket towards the, the umpire at square leg and, and then walk back again and refocus. He said the only time I refocus when the bowler started his runner. Once the ball had been played, I'd let it go. Off I went, switched off. He said, otherwise, how the hell can you keep going for eight hours batting? You know, if you're really focused all the time. So it's, it's really, yeah, good point that, that you made about, from a rugby point of view, it works as well. Yeah, and like you say, with the expecting people to um, do it for 80 minutes or whatever, and the school lesson's been 35 minutes. I know myself, when I go to do for the work, like after half an hour or 40 minutes, or, you know, the odd time I'll do an hour, but then it's like, I'll go up and get a coffee or I'll go, you know, grab something to a bite, a quick snack to eat, or, and you go back. You know, we, we all know it. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I was a history teacher, so sixth form, double periods of history. So they're two, 2.35, so it's 70-minute lessons. After half an hour, I'd say, right, just clear off for five, ten minutes. Just go away. Let's all have a break from one another and come back. Because you just can't get going for 70 minutes. Yeah. Well, I think some members of staff thought they could. But uh, maybe the better teachers than me could keep the, play, the pupils engaged better than I could. But I just found it incredibly difficult for myself. And I think... I think the students probably were pleased to have a bit of a break um, in the middle to sort of re-energize themselves. Yeah, for sure. And um, when I was back home in Ireland playing Mike Ruddock, the old Welsh coach was coaching me and the team. And he, uh, he used to do a really good thing after kind of like 10 or 12 minutes of a video session, he would tell everyone to get up and, give someone a hug, find a new seat, do something, you know, play rock, paper, scissors or whatever. And yeah, I, yeah, it's, it's really important that, yeah. If you want to get the best out of people, yeah, you've got to give them the opportunity to, to re-energize and recharge the batteries from time to time. Yeah. And how did you find the pro game when you went from coaching amateur and to professional? And I would imagine that kind of when you're with bat, that would have been, probably still somewhat professional, would it have been or no? Well, no, it wasn't. It was, I mean, I suppose it was professional in the sense that the club, anyone who wanted to join the club, the club probably found some occupations for them. Found, But it was genuine occupation. It wasn't, uh, so I suppose um, that might have been sort of a third of the way down the route to professionalism. Uh, so... There was an interesting one. Do, do, do you remember a player called Nigel Redman? Name rings a bell before my yeah. time, though. Played second row, played for England, played for British Lions, really good friend of mine still. And I remember him being quoted in the paper um, saying, what difference is it going to make now that the game's gone professional? I said, oh, the first thing is, is that we know the coach is now in charge. And you know, we just follow what the coach says. I phoned him up. I said, what's all this crap you're talking about? You know, the coach. Well, he said, is that not how professionalism works? I said, well, why should it be any different to what it was like before when we had this collaborative learning environment at Bath? 
So what's the difference? Least, well, you know, we read about football managers are always in charge. And, and I think there's a real danger of this misconception of the culture of the coach as did, did develop, I think, in the professional game, that the coach became more important um, because we sort of, uh, whether deliberately or not, but subconsciously followed the football route where the manager seems to be the person who everyone talks about well, talks about more than the players anyway. And I remember having a conversation, it was on Zoom actually some time ago now with Wayne Smith, the ex-All Blacks coach. Um, and he was saying he fought really hard in New Zealand uh, to try and prevent this culture of the coach from becoming, becoming dominant. He said, because, you know, and I agree with him, and I've always, well, not always, but latterly followed this anyway, the game is a player's game. You know, coach, I stopped using the word coach a few years ago and called myself a conciliary, um, which unfortunately is, is sort of a mafia undertones. <laughs> but but it, the conciliary I'm talking about, it's not the dark side of it. It's, uh, it's sort of, it, I mean, I played in Italy, I speak Italian, I know it, it's an advisory. You're an advisor and you, um, you set scenarios that we talked about before, you set frameworks and you, you step in to help if you feel it's needed or if the players request you to come in. Otherwise, it's sort of, the, again, I keep using the word collaborative, I know, but it's a collaborative environment where we're all pitching together to find the best way of being successful. <clears throat> and I think conciliary seems to fit that sort of approach better than coach, because coach has still got this ring about it, hasn't it? I'm the man in charge, I'm the coach. Yeah. And a lot of people love that, I'm the coach. You know, the way they say it, you think, oh, okay, yeah. Bully for you. <laughs> yeah, I understand. I saw you write that word, uh, conciliary, is that it? On a, a LinkedIn post, I, I Googled it and and it's, yeah, I really like it. Um, because, yeah, the soccer one is, it's wrong. And I watched two episodes so far of the Arsenal Amazon Prime and it's all focused about Arteta the coach and maybe that's just because of um the way the 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 deal well I don't know the way these production companies do it but it's all about him and what he says and it's as if it's as if his pre-match meeting equals win or loss it's like and it's all about him and I just after one episode, I was like, man, this is actually a bit too much. It's everyone sitting around. He's on a whiteboard three minutes before kickoff. He's banging on the whiteboard, drawing and scribbling. And, and then it's like, all right, let's go. Yeah, I just don't get that at all. Maybe it was done for effect for the... Yeah. <clears throat> because uh, he was at Manchester City for a while, working with Guardiola. Now, I One of my other roles is I'm a sort of a, a, a mentor, whatever that means. I've worked for Premier League football for the last 10 years, um, but also Football League as well. But one of the clubs I can go into at the moment is Manchester City. And I've developed a quite close relationship with, with the academy manager, Jason Wilcox, who played for Blackburn when they won the Premiership that year and also played for England a few times. And the last time I was in, um, we were just talking about, um, about this giving ownership to the players at certain times, giving them responsibility ownership, and hopefully that would start to develop leaders as they took more and more ownership on. And we're discussing, he said, you know, did you see the quote of Guardiola's about three or four years ago? 
Uh, somebody asked him about, um, you know, you must be, you must be very much in control of what's going on during a game. And Guardiola said, why? And they said, well, you're always gesticulating on the touchline and shouting. He said, yeah. So, but A, the players can't hear me. In a stadium with 60,000 people in, he said, and if they could, they'd probably ignore me because I've always told them, when you cross that white line at the beginning of the game, you're in charge of what happens next. So you, you can't play the game from the touchline because you, you don't get the emotion. Uh, you're not immersed in the emotion of the game that, and, that the players are. So, you, you know, you can't understand why they're making those decisions in the heat of the moment because you're completely detached from it. And he said, all I'm doing there is, is getting rid of my own personal emotion by waving my arms about. He said, other coaches just sit down and watch a game. He said, but I can't do that. So it's quite interesting. Yeah. And Guardiola did, I think, two weeks ago or something, talk about how it's all about the play. Someone, he talked about how it's about the players after a win or something. They said, oh, you, they gave him a, commended him and he put the, the praise onto the players and which is obviously normal but in a football world it's not normal so that's why I think it got headlines and thanks Mel, for your time but just um I, something also that you just mentioned there that I, I find confusing in that the soccer coaches football um waving and shouting and screaming yeah. on a sideline and most of them do it a lot of them do it yeah. and then rugby coaches go into a a box up in a state stand and it's something for me when I I was coaching while I was playing and I was started coaching when I was early 20s but I used to be running around like a mad thing like up and down the sideline as if I was still playing and then I realized you know players don't want that some players said some you know some do some don't but anyway so I stand at the back now up in the stand or and I'm completely detached and completely and don't shout at all and I feel this better because I know when I was a player and I had a coach shouting at me, I'd be like, shut up. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think you're absolutely right. And the other thing, if you go and you're going to panoramic view of the game, don't you? If you go and stand above the game, I mean, Christ, I'm five foot seven. So I stand on a touchline, I can't see anything at all. See, it's 30 players who are bigger than me running about on a field. <laughs> No, so that's ridiculous. Um, but one of the other things that's sort of adding on to that is I love to have the panoramic view, but I, I really tried incredibly hard because it was, it would have been non-authentic for me to constantly sending messages on during the game. You know, mm -hmm. I, I always felt, certainly in the professional era, my work was probably done midweek. And the players have a day off and then from sort of 48 hours in, it's, it's, their, it's their game. It's up to them. We've decided how we're going to play together. Um, they go out and they perform and for better or for worse, you know, the result is what the result is. If at half time, and this is our break in a double period of history, after 35 minutes, it's like, go away. And have a, so they come in and as just as you said right at the very start, I think, you stand and listen or sit and listen to what they're talking about. And if they're actually talking about what you're going to say, there's not much point in saying anything. You know, apart from that fantastic guy, I've just been listening, that's exactly what I was going to say. Okay, let's go. You know, why repeat what they've just said? Because it starts to lose its bloody impact then, doesn't it? So, 
But uh, I think a lot of coaches still feel because they've got this title, the coach, that they've got to say something. 100% I had that experience yesterday. Literally, I was coaching and the halftime was incredible. They said some unreal things. And I was just like, yep, that's it. And yeah. I think it's coaches' insecurity too when they talk too much. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And you wonder too, don't you, because of the environment that has been created over the years around the coach, whether the players' expectations at half-time, the coach is going to say something. And if he doesn't, some of them are a bit uneasy, thinking, why is he not saying anything? So I think, again, you've got to cultivate that sort of framework and environment, haven't you, over a period of time? To say, look, I might come in at half-time, but if things are going well, you're saying the right things, what's the point of me saying anything? I'll just quietly slip out and leave you to it. So don't get concerned about it. It's a good sign if I don't say anything, not a bad one. Yeah. Yeah, hundred percent. Well, hey, Brian, thank you so, so much for your time. I've loved uh, chatting. Go on no, forever. Uh, yeah, it's fantastic. Really enjoyed it. Thanks very much for giving me the opportunity. And uh, yeah, good luck with all the stuff that you're doing. I titled this one A Masterclass in Coaching and Leadership. And I don't know where the titles come from. I just think of them, but... When I was going back over this chat, editing it, I was making so many notes and I just love the way he thinks about things. I love how he spoke about active listening and how the players often know a lot more than you give them credit for and how if you actually just ask the players what they know and what they want to work on you will be so much more effective as a coach like how simple is that but once again how effective another thing I really liked I'll probably butcher it but the conciliary the word he used for the advisor versus the coach and throughout all that you can really see the lack of ego that he has and I think that's so important because you've probably like I have played under coaches where it's all about them and they try to do things to let you know that they're the ones in control and that they have the power and that's just not a great environment to be in without harping on it too much I just love how throughout you could hear how he always wanted to elevate the players listen to the players hear what they had to say and yeah I just think that's so important in coaching and as a coach you always need to have that self-awareness as always if you have any thoughts or questions please do reach out to me the different ways you can do so are through my website offfieldrugby.com my instagram is at offfieldrugby and on there i also share content to help you with the mental side of the game to have more self-confidence overcome setbacks achieve higher levels and those are probably the best too my email also is offfieldrugby at gmail.com Please would you do me a favor now and just click into where you're listening to this podcast and leave a rating and a review. 
that's a really quick thing to do takes 30 seconds but it really helps the podcast grow and another thing you can do is send it on to some friends send it into your coaching whatsapp group your team's whatsapp group would really appreciate that and i'm sure they would also appreciate hearing from brian ashton lastly my new book is out now on amazon the book on how you become a pro rugby player in that i share strategies and frameworks on how you can develop your mental strength and play in the zone when you're out there on the field there some irish people have reached out to me saying that there are issues with amazon.co.uk and it is showing that the book is unavailable on the website on the .co.uk website if you're living in ireland and you're having that issue please just dm me and we'll sort it out i'm pretty sure you will be able to go onto amazon.com anyway but if you can't get the book if it's saying that it's unavailable just send me a dm on instagram email my website offfieldrugby.com or also actually my linkedin which is my name brian moylet thanks a mil as always for clicking in today have a brilliant rest of your day cheers